I just want to say this, it's, it's always a privilege to preach God's Word. I never want to take that for granted. Uh, I'm always aware of time, and always aware of trying to be clear, as clear as I can, as, as succinct as I can, uh, every time I get the opportunity to preach. So I don't particularly want to preach any longer than is necessary, but I want to do it justice in terms of what the portion that we're going to read this morning. So go to James chapter 1, please, and we're going to look at the last couple of verses this morning. But it reminded me as I was thinking this morning, uh, as I got up to pray, uh, there's a story of a American, American preacher whose congregation were complaining that it was too long, it was too long-winded. And so he said to him on Sunday, he, um, he apologized, he said, sorry that I, my sermons have been too long recently. And he said, I heard that the preamble of the Declaration of Independence contains 300 words. The Ten Commandments, 97 words. The Gettysburg Address, 267 words. The Lord's Prayer, 100. However, the recent government report on the price of cabbages contained 29,011 words. Though today's sermon is going to be somewhere between the Lord's Prayer and the cabbage report. <laughs> so I will try to do the same. Somewhere between 100 words and 29,000. We're going to preach this morning. Uh, the, uh, other thing I read this week, uh, which I found amusing, the definition of an optimist is someone who believes the preacher, but he says, in conclusion. <laughs> Alright. But I want to start this morning by asking you a very simple question. And I trust as we talk this morning, you'll be able to think this through together with me. What do you think a truly spiritual person looks like? What do you think true spirituality is? Maybe you can just reflect on that for a while. And um, as you do that, I just want to recap over the last couple of weeks just the tone of this first chapter of James that we've been looking at. And uh, the last couple of weeks we've been having a look at that we are set free in Christ, that we experience absolute freedom as we look into the mirror of God's gospel, as we look into the perfect law of freedom, the perfect law of liberty. We are transformed to be more like Jesus. We don't look into the law of introspection, the mirror of introspection that produces nothing, it just produces apathy and death in our lives. It's endless cycle of introversion. Now the gospel says we look to Christ, the perfect one. And as we look to Christ, we look to the perfection of his gospel, we are transformed, we are set free. We become more and more like ourselves, who God intended us to be, and ultimately become more and more like Jesus. And uh, Jesus came and he lived and he dwelt amongst us, and he went about doing good, and we who are called after Christ are called into the same ministry for our lives, to go around doing good, not to earn salvation, but out of joyful obedience to the gospel, we give ourselves away to other people. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus. And so, James uses this terminology that we are doers of the word and doers of the work of the kingdom. So I want to come back to the question I saw, what are truly spiritual people? What do truly spiritual people look like? What what does what characterizes them? Um, and I think the answer that James gives us might surprise us. And if you would like to read with me, please, verse twenty-six of chapter one. And this these two verses are really the hinge upon which this whole letter turns. This is the crucial crucial point of chapter one. This is what James says: If anyone thinks he is religious, I want to not use religious, because it has too many connotations. I'd rather prefer to use spiritual. If anyone thinks he's spiritual and does not control his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's 
religion or spirituality is worthless. Religion that is pure, that's undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep yourself unstained from the world. world. Powerful. <laughs> it's simple. Incredibly, incredibly simple. And James has got three things on his mind as he says these two verses. Control your tongue, be concerned for the poor, and be separate from the world. And so I'd like to just uh, look at those three things today. Controlling the tongue, having love for the poor, the needy, and being separate from the world. And what they mean, and James is saying that this is true spirituality. It is very practical. It is very simple. This is how we express true spirituality in our lives. Our love for Christ. We control how we speak. We love the lost. We love the poor. And we are separate from the world. And the whole of the first chapter up to now has really had five themes that are continued in this verse. And I really, I suppose I could summarize the five into three. But the first major thing that we had a look at, if you remember, was count it all joy when you fall into trials of all kinds. Remember? We looked at that for a couple of weeks. And then we looked at wisdom from heaven and uh, how we can enjoy wisdom from heaven. That was verse 5 to 8. Verse 9 to 12 talked about poverty and wealth and how we need to be satisfied whatever condition we find ourselves in. Whether we have much or whether we have little. Paul says, I've learned with joy to abound in all things, whether I have much or whether I have little. And we had a look at that. And uh, I had a message called the camel and the eye of the needle, which was trying to look at these things of wealth and poverty. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the engrafted word, how the word comes to us. As the word comes to us, Christ comes to us, he enables us to resist temptation, he enables us to to stand against things, and it's by the power of the word that is in us. And we looked at salvation, what that means. We looked at common grace and saving grace, what that means. And uh, we overcome all of these things by the word of God, by Christ. And we looked at that verse 18 to 25. And I guess I think we could summarize those five into three. Faith is one, wisdom is another, and joy is another. Those three key ingredients are already what the first chapter is about. It's about faith in Christ, undoubted faith, wisdom from heaven that comes to us, and joy in all circumstances. Three kind of key things that summarize the whole of the first chapter. And here, these two verses kind of summarize all that James has been saying. They also deliver a challenge to us, is that actually, you can see if you started to resist temptation, if you are becoming the world, you can see in a very practical way what that means, and how, just how much let's say, the good of And James challenges us with the three things that he's going to talk about in chapter 2, 3, and 4, which really are the summary of the whole of the, 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 the remainder of the letter. So these, really, these two verses really are the hinge upon which the whole thing turns, the whole letter turns. And I, he makes a simple and profound point. The first thing that he does in this one, first point, and I really do have three points today. <laughs> this is my first point. He makes a very simple point. He says there is such a thing as self-deceived spirituality. What are you saying? He says religion, spirituality that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. And then he defines it. So I guess I could ask all of us this morning, how would you finish this sentence? What would you say if someone asked you, Martin, what is pure spirituality? Define it for me. How would you, how would you finish this sentence? 
Zach, how would you finish the sentence if someone asked you that? Perhaps I would suggest you perhaps we might say some things like this. Um, religion has to do with prayer. Spirituality has to do with prayer. It has to do with reading the scripture. It has to do with enjoying great times of worship together. It uh, has to do with praying for others. It has to do with um, being generous, giving your tithe, and being generous to the poor. That has to, that's to what true spirituality is. I think that's the kind of answers that we would give. Dealing radically with sin in our lives, letting the Holy Spirit come and put a sword through our own hearts, not being hypocritical. But James makes a simple and a profound and a striking point. He just says this. He says, there's a form of religion, there's a form of spirituality that actually is quite self-satisfied. It's pleased with itself. And at the same time, it's defiled before God. And in our culture, if, if, uh, I was watching this Danny DeVito, uh, I love his acting, Danny DeVito, and he was, he was talking about, um, they, they asked him, they said, you know, did, he any, did he have any kind of religious belief? And he said, no, I'm not a religious person, I don't do that stuff. In other words, our culture, whenever you speak to, to someone who's not saved, that's a very common phrase, I'm not a religious person. What they mean by not being a religious person is, I don't do prayer, I don't do reading my Bible, I don't go to any kind of church to worship, I don't do that stuff. That's for religious people. That's what the culture would say. That's for religious people. Um, I would say, I believe prayer, reading the scripture, celebrating together, being generous with our finances, our basic, basic ABC, building blocks of Christian faith. I believe they're good. Absolutely good. We need to be giving energy and time to that. But James is saying a very simple thing. He's saying it's possible to do all of that stuff and still not please God. Possible to have a form of spirituality that is self-satisfied and at the same time is defiled and unpleasing to God. And he unpacks that a little bit and he says this, that true spirituality is incredibly practical. Incredibly practical. He mentions three down-to-earth things. The first thing he says is, this is point 1A. Control your tongue. <laughs> Control your tongue. You know, I always felt guilty about, sometimes I speak too strongly, I say things that I regret, and uh, it's been a major test in my life. And I wanted to say this to you, I, it's always made me feel myself, I felt a little bit guilty about it and introverted about it. But you know what, I think it is one of the most fundamental things for all of us as Christians. Learning to control our tongues. James says it is the most practical expression of your walk with Jesus, how you speak. And so in that sense, I don't feel guilty anymore because I know it's a problem that every one of us faces, controlling our tongue. In fact, James has already hinted at it. He's already, he's already let us know that it's coming in verse 19 of chapter 1 when he says this, Know this, my beloved, Brothers, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to, and he's already introduced it. And I, I try to give some time to that. I preached a sermon called Thinking Before Speaking. And that was exactly what I was trying to say. So he comes back to this theme now, and he's going to enlarge it in chapter 3. But I want to say controlling the tongue is much more than just keeping quiet. <laughs> It would be so easy if controlling your tongue was just to keep it quiet. You could all go around saying nothing. But that's not really what he's talking about. And uh, if I can illustrate it like this, imagine for those of you that enjoy Formula One, uh, imagine if you had a claim to be the best Formula One driver in the world. So like Lewis Hamilton or uh, Sebastian Vettel or who's the other guy? Philip Massa. They're all these guys that 
like at the month of right up there in terms of Formula One drivers. It would be like training to be the best Formula One driver in the world, but never ever getting in a car and, and driving race. Or it would be like a footballer, say uh, Messi or uh, Rudy. These guys claim to be some of the best footballers in the world. People look to them as the best footballers in the world. It would be like a footballer saying he was the best at his trade and not ever playing a game. <laughs> not ever kicking a ball. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? So if it, if it was just to keep quiet, it can't possibly be that. We know that's nonsense. It can't be that. Learning to control our tongue, I believe, with the grace of God, is learning to speak with such a skill that we only do good when we speak. That we only bless others when we speak. And you know that's kind of, for now, if you've been born in this church for any length of time, you must know that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do that by sheer willpower. It is impossible. It's only possible by the Holy Spirit. Someone said this, and I don't know who. Focuses, but keep your words soft and sweet in case you have to eat them later. <laughs> keep your words soft and sweet in case you have to eat them later. So it might be that learning to control our tongue is sometimes keeping quiet. But I want to say it's much more than just silence, it's much more than that. In other words, James is saying to be a doer of the words. To be a doer of the word, that's his terminology, that's his language, means it doesn't only consist of applying the word of God to your life, which we must do, we must apply the word, it must come, the implanted word must come to us, but it also includes demonstrating that we have applied the word to our hearts by controlling how we speak. It's a very logical thing he's saying, very simple thing. Why does he say that? Well, I think he's, there are many things we could say, I'll just give you. Three things perhaps he's concerned about. Well, one, if we don't control how we speak, we jump to, to false conclusions that we speak rashly. And James is saying, I want you to avoid that. And we have one of those phrases where he says, you can even think about that in terms of God, where he says, Let no man say, when he is tempted, that he is tempted by God. Remember that beautiful statement? There's no evil that comes from God. Don't say when you've been tempted it's come from God. No, no. Every good gift, every beautiful gift, every perfect gift comes to us from the Father of lights, comes down to us from our Father in heaven. He only gives good gifts to his children. Every bad gift comes from within us, it comes from the devil. Don't we get confused. And he's saying, even when you speak, don't say something like that. Don't be rash. Don't be hasty. It's a wrong conclusion. It's a false conclusion. Nothing evil comes from God. Don't speak like that. Don't be rash. Don't hastily announce something that proves to be false later. Keep your words soft and sweet because actually you might have to eat them later. That's what he's saying. Secondly, we grieve the Spirit when we speak rashly. When we speak before we think. And I'm trying to look at that in detail as well. Nothing good. Remember I said nothing good. Nothing, nothing, nothing good comes from anger. The only one who wins when you're angry is the devil. No one else. And I'm speaking to you as someone who's, who's had to try and bridle my own mind. I'm not saying that I'm a champion in this area. But I am saying God is teaching me. Be careful how we speak, how we open our mouths. In the real sense, that we, we only greet the Holy Spirit when we open our mouths. But at the same time, we can please the Holy Spirit when we speak with blessing and in encouragement to others. Amen? Thirdly, I think James is saying this because we can be a poor public witness. What is he saying? He's saying, 
true spirituality is one who controls his tongue. So he's saying that we can clearly demonstrate hypocrisy to people if we, if we don't control how we speak. We can go, we can be those that never miss a Sunday meeting, we can be those that are diligent in prayer, we can be those that are enjoy personal times of worship, have good theology, uh, pray for others, reach out into the community, we can do all this stuff which is really, really good. And James is saying at the same time, if you lose your temper, it's not a good witness. Is it? That we can simultaneously express beautiful things out of our relationship with God and simultaneously to that we can be hypocritical in how we live. We do not control our time. This is very practical and I trust you are making crunch because that's what I'm trying to do. And James says, he says, if we are like that, we seem to be religious. In other words, we're more concerned about making a good impression to people that we actually are about our relationship with God. And Jesus kind of makes that point in Matthew 6. Remember the famous portion where they're talking about uh, giving to the needy and he says, don't, don't do that in public. Don't, uh, don't let your right hand know what your left is doing. He says, just go and do it in private. And he says of the um, people who wanted to be seen giving to the poor, he says to them, everybody knows it and that's your reward. <laughs> that's what Jesus says in chapter 6 basically. He's like, if you want people to see how generous you are, your reward has already been received on earth. That's it. People are going to call you. And he says, no, no, don't live like that. Store up rather for yourself treasure in heaven, where your father sees. Do some things in private that nobody sees. When you pray, pray in private. Not like the Pharisees who pray in public and loudly say, oh, can see that they pray. You just get in, go home, close the doors, and you pray to your father in heaven. That's what Jesus said. Amen? That's seeming to be religious. And James, he calls that self-deception. He says, actually, if we live like that, the only people that we are deceived are ourselves. We can't control our tongues, and we're eager to show others how religious we are, how spiritual we are, and how we behavior. It just points to one fact. Our tongue exposes our heart. That's basically what he's saying. And Jesus put it profoundly in Matthew 12, verse 24, when he, when he, when he he spoke to the Pharisees and he said this, You brood of vipers, you snakes. You snakes. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Inside comes out. Especially when you're under pressure. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to speak this through to kind of put any heaviness on people. I'm just saying... As we walk by the Spirit, as we journey by the Spirit, one of the main areas of our lives, we're going to say, God, please give me grace. Please give me grace in my life. It's how I speak. That's what I'm saying. This is a walk by the Spirit. Grace to control our tongues comes from the reality that we are applying the Word of God, and not only that we are hearers of the Word, but that the, the Word that we are applying is affecting our hearts, and it's affecting our mouths, and we are those that are gracious in our words. An expression of the grace of God in our lives. So James says, he says, uh, if you like that, and you person who's not controlling your tongue, he says, your, your spirituality is worthless. Okay? Please. He did not say you're not saved. Didn't say that. He just said, your spirituality is worthless. In other words, he's saying this. You might be born again. But you are hypocrites about how you live. That's what he's saying. And how I live. I'm not pointing a finger at anyone. So 
Now he's saying, be careful how you speak, because it is an expression of your relationship with Jesus. Okay? So that's quite negative, right? That's quite negative. But he gets more positive now. And then he says this, he says, not only is he controlling our tongue, but he says, before God, the kind of spirituality that pleases God is, and this is the positive thing, he says, is showing compassion for the poor and showing compassion for the needy. This is a magnificent statement. And as I've been talking with Helen this week, I've been saying, my darling, I'm scared to preach this because I know as I'm preaching this, God is doing stuff in my own heart about the poor. I've said to this, to this church for so many years, we have to find a way of engaging with the poor, the lost and the broken. We, this is the gospel. And it's going to affect us. It's going to affect me. And I'm preaching these things and I'm saying, I don't know what it's going to mean. Perhaps God is going to speak to us and say something radical. I don't know. This is the thing that's, this is the thing that convinced Michael even that he had to he had to leave London and go to Kenya where he's been living for 30 years amongst the poorest of the poor preaching the gospel. This is the thing that convinced him. This is true spirituality. <laughs> so I don't even know what I'm saying. I'm nervous in some ways to preach this, but I've got to preach. This is a magnificent, magnificent statement. The second mark of true spirituality, James says, is shown compassion for the needy and the it's pure spirituality. It's done before God. It pleases Him. And I talked about the Logos, the Logos word, and I talked about Ergo. The, 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 we, we are those that do the word, and we are those that do the work. And He puts the two things together. He says, What is doing the work? Doing the work is visiting the poor and visiting the widow. That's doing the work. What is doing the word? Doing the work is keeping yourself unstained from the world. That's what it is. So he's not saying you must be personally holy, he's saying that there is personal holiness, but your personal holiness includes being a faithful witness to the gospel in how you live, how you see yourself, how you see other people. So it's not an either or, it's a both and. And I want to say to you this morning, we can be faithful in leaving the world behind, we can be faithful in dignifying the new man, we can be faithful in putting to death the flesh, and in that sense, we're honoring God with our lives. At the same time, we dishonor God by not caring for the poor. Or we can care for the poor and be concerned with the social gospel, and yet at the same time have no, no sense of God needs to change me. It must be personal values expressed as well. And both of those are wrong. So I don't believe it's a one, either, or. I believe it's a both and. And this is the classic tension that we see in the church. There are those that want to preach a social gospel. The social gospel is, we've got to do something for the poor, and so we give all our energy into meeting the physical needs of poor people. And then there, there are those that say, no, we must preach the gospel. And what does that mean? It means, well, unless a man is saved, he's just going to go to heaven, either a poor man or a rich man. But if he's not saved, he's not saved. And so these are the two tensions, the social gospel and preaching the gospel. And I want to say to you, there must be a third way, which is both of them. Must be both. Because of what Christ has done. Because of this great salvation that we've received, the gospel that we know, the gospel that's transforming us, it must be worked out in the care and the loss for the lost and the broken. It must be. It, is, it cannot be anything else. It's <laughs> uh, fascinating to me that when, uh, so what I'm saying, we must have a non-verbal witness of the gospel in our lives as well. We must demonstrate it somehow. 
That doesn't save us. But nothing to do with salvation. It's an expression. It's a joyful obedience to Christ. And uh, I was just thinking, it's a great theme in the Scripture. It's one of the great narratives of the Bible. God loves the poor and the lost and the broken. When He first took His people out of Egypt, they were distressed, they were discouraged, they were dreamless, they were a depressed group of slaves in Egypt. God's heart is always for the lost and the broken. Always. And what does He say? He says to Moses, go and speak to them and say, God wants to set you free to worship Him. That's it. That's the great narrative of, the, of redemption all throughout the Scripture. God cares for the fatherless. Even under the Mosaic law, the, we had a look at that, the, 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 uh, the law which is absolutely ruthless in some ways. We see it's a thing that's on God's heart. And if you want to look for yourself, you can look at Exodus 22, 22, Deuteronomy 16, 11, Deuteronomy 24, 17, Deuteronomy 26, 12. This thing of the, 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 the fatherless and God working on behalf of the poor and needy. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He gives the sojourner, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Speaking about God, intervening on behalf of those that he describes to. Those that oppress the fatherless, make God angry. Deuteronomy 27, 19. Curse be anyone who converts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And all the people say, Amen. God expects something of his people that is an outward livingness. Not just living for ourselves, this is the fruit of the gospel. And the same things can be said about uh, taking care of widows, their need for provision, helping making good decisions, protection, and those that oppress them. And God is especially concerned for those that are overlooked. And one of the scriptures, key scriptures that we felt God give us in this church, Psalm 68, verse 5. Father to the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. That God would set the lonely families in this community of faith. Yes? Psalm 146, verse 1. The Lord watches over the sojourners, he upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Proverbs 15, 25. The Lord tears down the house of the proud that maintains the widow's boundaries. There's a practical application there. In God, he also says kindness towards the widow and the fatherless commended in the scriptures a mark of faithfulness towards God. Isaiah 1 verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fathers. Plead the widow's cause. That's what God says we should be engaged in. In those kind of things. Those things don't save us. Those are an expression of the gospel. And in case you just accuse me of saying, well, it's all Old Testament, what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus has said exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. Mark 12, 14, speaking to the Pharisees, he said this, You who devour the widow's house. You devour the widow's house, and at the same time, make a pretense for long praise. This is what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, you will receive greater condemnation. The religious people. Pray long praise in public that everyone can hear. At the same time, not caring for devouring the widow's house, not caring for the widow. Jesus said exactly the same thing. The hallmark of the early New Testament church was that they organized daily help for widows. And you know, in Acts chapter 6, the, the thing that comes when the Greek, the 
Greek governors of, seem to be over the favor of those speaking Aramaic and so they say, no, no, let's, let's sort this out. It needs to be fair. It needs to be equitable in God's house. And so set aside some men who can do this and the apostles can get on with preaching and praying and seeking God. Okay. But the second mark of spirituality, true spirituality, is loving the poor, the widow, and the needy. And I want to say to you that it's a very, very practical way of us becoming more and more like Jesus. You might say to me, well, what on earth does that have to do with demonstrating God's grace? And I want to say to you, it has everything to do with demonstrating God's grace. Everything. It shows that we are beginning to be more and more like Jesus. We are beginning to care about those that cannot possibly do us any good. That's what R.T. said to me. He said, he said, that's the demonstration of a man's true character. See how he demonstrates, see how he cares about those that cannot do anything for him. We're very good at caring for those that can do something for us. They can help us get ahead in business. They can help us in our career or our education. We're very good at making mates, being friends with them. Because we can get something. The true mark of characters is how you treat those that can do nothing for you. They cannot give anything back to you. Am I too intense? Okay, good. Sorry if I am, but... You know, I was just thinking, Jesus was not picky. <laughs> Jesus wasn't picky. He didn't go throughout the planet because it was a nice middle-class town and they to nice middle-class people. He didn't do that. Wherever there was demonic oppression, wherever there was poor people, He preached the good news. This is the good news. It's good news to the poor. It's good news to the blind. It's good news to those that are under demonic oppression. It's not a comfortable middle-class message. Jesus was not a respecter of persons or place. He cared for anyone that came across his path. And James, when he mentions widows and orphans, he does that because they are a picture for us of those whose material and physical circumstances are hopeless. A widow does not have a husband. An orphan does not have a mom or a dad. Their future is hopeless. They do not have protectors. I want to say to you, it's not, notice he doesn't say a widow does not have a partner. I, I don't want to make a big thing of a small thing. I object to that in our culture. This is my partner. This is not your partner. This is your husband or your wife. This is a covenant that you've made with that person to definitely be part. Not some partner that you can conveniently just move out of your cohabitation together when it doesn't work out well. This is nonsense. I want to encourage you to stand against that. Husband to one wife. Wife to one husband. That is the one of the scripture, not partner. Partner just waters down the truth and makes it convenient for us to not be accountable for our behavior. That is it. I'm sorry to be so blunt. No, I'm not sorry to be so blunt. So James' point is making, even when he says we have to be careful, well, I don't believe that's in a mechanical way, I don't believe it's in a legalistic way, I don't believe it's in an occasional kind of way. Why do I say that? Because the Greek is very, very interesting. It's, uh, it's used in a number of verses and it conveys, it conveys a deep affection from the heart. And it's the, the, the Greek in the, the verse we just read is the same that Paul uses in Acts 15 36 when he says to Barnabas, he says, Let's return and visit the brothers in every city, in other words, wherever we preach the gospel, the church is being formed, where we proclaim the, the word of God, and let us see how they are. That's what Paul says to Barnabas. 
It says, deep affection from the heart that Paul is speaking about. In the same way, Acts 7.22, Stephen says, this that famous message of his, he says, Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. The Greek is exactly the same. Exactly the same. And so what the, when, when James is saying we are to visit the orphans and the, uh, and the widows, he's not just saying in an occasional way. He's saying it's to be a deep affection of your heart, a commitment in your heart to live like that. To live not for yourself anymore, but to live for others that are less, uh, less than you have. It's a deep commitment. It's something that can cost you something. He's not letting us get away and saying, well, our obligation as Christians is to put a fiber in the offering bowl and when it comes around for the poor. He's saying, you know, I'm not calling you to that. I'm calling you to something much, much deeper than that. I'm calling you to commitment of your heart, a lifestyle that's going to affect you and it's going to cost you. It is going to cost you to live like this. Well, Jesus summarized it like this. He said, do unto others as it would happen to do unto you. I believe that means we go to those that are need, regardless of race, background, color, or creed. And I believe that part of the unfolding journey of this church is to find out from God where He wants us, as a community of faith, put our energy and to be practically involved with the poor and with the community. I want to commend those that are already involved in that. I'm fascinated that this, that this church community there's, there's always been a lot of people that are involved in teaching and nurses and uh, people that are occupational therapists and, and in their careers something of that is already being expressed. And I commend them. I think that's, that is incredible that people would choose to live like this. And just as we run up to Christmas, can I, can I give you this thought? Can I challenge you with this as I'm challenging myself? See as Lewis said this. There ought to be things that we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Incredibly charitable. No, he's saying this. You might want to go to Mallorca three times a year. But you know, if you're going to live as a Christian and you're going to give away for others that you have less than you, perhaps God is saying to you and to me, go to Mallorca once a year. And the money that you spend on the other two trips, it's going to cost you something but I want you to give that away to someone else. It costs. This is not just scary, very, very practical. I, I was talking with him as we were talking about what we're going to do for Christmas. Perhaps this Christmas it will be good for us to have a less fancy Christmas and take some of the money that will make our Christmas luxurious and just have a basic Christmas and, and celebrate with our close friends and give some of that money away to others that are going to have less This is very practical. This is true spirituality. This is how we should live. This is not a this is not a, a whip on your back. No one can force you to live like this. You only live like this with the revelation of Christ. <laughs> I was just saying, there's only one reason to give. I believe we give. We do not give because we are under the law. There's no punishment if you do not give. God is not going to bless you because you do give. God blesses those that give, and God blesses those that don't give. We've grown up in a faith prosperity culture that says if you give in the church, God is going to give you back many fold, many fold more. I want to say to you that's not the gospel, that is incredibly selfish. The only reason I give 
it says that I can get more. What is that? So much of the church is, um, talks to his this morning. He sent me a text. He said, um, he said, Andrew, I just watched this program last night on the pastors from the country that I come from who are millionaires and they celebrate the fact that they're millionaires. I'm not saying you can't be a millionaire if you're a pastor, but I am saying if your motivation is teaching people to give so that you can get more, I spit on that. That is disgusting. That is not the gospel of Jesus. Never has been. God's heart has always been for the word. Always. So, keep yourself unstained from the world. My third point. <laughs> what does that mean? Keep yourself unstained from the world. This is the third mark of pure spirituality. But it reminds me of what Jesus said to the Pharisees uh, in Luke uh, eleven forty-two. He says this, Woe to you Pharisees, woe to you religious people, for you tithe the mint and the rue and every herb. You are sticklers for doing exactly what the law says. You give every little detail of what the law says, but you neglect justice and love of God. And he says, changes him, he says, you should have done the former, you should have done the first thing without neglecting the other. In other words, you want to do both. So, I believe we do need to be doers of the work of the kingdom, but at the same time, we need to keep ourselves unspotted from the world, unblemished from the world. Isaiah puts it this way, Isaiah 58 verse 6, you know well, he says, is this not the kind of fast that I've chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not that you share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him, not to hide yourself from your own flesh. In other words, Fasting, he's saying, it's not just, you know, fasting is not just about uh, not having food and being spiritual and praying. He's saying that this fasting that God desires is a very practical thing to demonstrate. Loving the lost, fasting from some things yourself that could be luxury to you, so do out without a little bit of luxury so others can have something more. So you know what? I am concluding. <laughs> uh, you know, Jesus used this phrase, be in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? What does that really, really mean? Well, I believe that becomes true for you and I. When the charm of the world, when the allure of the world makes no impression on your thought process, no dent on your character or your conduct, no difference in the motivation to live for God and for Godliness. It's when the world is no longer able to squeeze you into its mold, and when the world doesn't take your affection away from God, on the other things. I've made some of the things I've said in the last while are not, are not easy, and I'm, I'm, I'm God is doing some stuff in my own life, but I, I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, this fascination with leisure, this fascination with, with luxury that I'm, I'm, I'm Grown up in as we experience in the Western world, I'm not sure that God values it. In fact, I know He doesn't value it. It's something about the gospel that has to radically affect how we live. You know, the basic thing about the squeeze we've had in the last couple of years is how much, you, how, how much less you can actually live on. Has anyone discovered that? In our households, we've, we've had several. 
God, we, actually we can live without all this extra stuff. Well, let's try and live like this ongoing, so we can be generous. And you know what? It does have implications for my, my boys. It's going to cost them as well. And we think if we don't give our boys, our, our kids, the latest toys, the latest version of the PSP, no, the latest this or they're going to grow up more people. I want to tell you, if you give that stuff to them all the time, they're going to grow up more people. Because they are going to grow up thinking that is how you should live. I want to say to you, it's not how you should live. <laughs> I believe the gospel, it turns it all on its head. Live violence. Oh, okay. Okay, so when James is saying these things, he's simply repeating what he's already said in verse 21. Lay aside all your immorality, lay aside the moral uh, wickedness, dignify the new man we have looked at the last couple of weeks. That's what it means. In other words, find out who is hurting in the world, find out who is hurting in the world, and go and do something about it. That is how you keep yourself unstained from the world. And so some of our bad attitudes have to die. Something of discrimination. You can look at chapter 3 where he says, don't treat people differently in the church. The one place where people come through the door and are absolutely equal, whether they are multi-billionaires or whether they're the poorest of the poor, the one place where it's absolutely equal is the church of Jesus Christ. Discrimination, love of money, treat others so that we get stuff out of them. And I want to say, doesn't seem to me, on reading this portion, that this is an odd optional extra for us as Christians. Why? Because James uses this little phrase. I wish he had it, but he did. <laughs> he says, You do this as before God. Before God. It's not an optional extra, it's an actual necessity. This is why it, 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 it matters so much. The biggest fight that Jesus had with the Pharisees is because they were more concerned about what people thought about them than what God thought about them. They were more concerned to, to follow all the details of the law and they neglected the heart of the law. They neglected what the law was supposed to do, was point people towards Christ. They neglected it altogether. And so, we are part of when we get saved. We get grafted into God's family. We get grafted in. The engrafted word comes into us. It's God who supplies all our needs. And sometimes God uses other people to help us supply the needs of the world. So James is saying, your Heavenly Father supplies all your needs. Your Heavenly Father is the one who you can trust completely for your provision. And He's saying we should live like that, so we can be that to other people. That's what He's saying. It's incredibly practical. That's pure spirituality. The way that the Father cares for us, our Heavenly Father, we should be those with all of whatever means we have, is trying to care for others in the same way that the Father God cares for us. And so, I want to say to you, when we, we started to look through our lives and look through things with those lenses, how much of church-going habits really please God? I want to say to you, this, this building, this great, great lesson that we have, this building, has never been an end in itself. This building has always, the motivation for us raising finances and doing what we did here was always that this would be a tool for task. The task is this. To preach the gospel of Jesus. That people would come into this building, into this community of faith, and they will be introduced to the gospel of Jesus, which radically transforms your life in every way. 
And then as they already can transform themselves, they will take that same gospel out of this building, into the community, into their homes, into their families and friendships, and, uh, and through them, other people will be radically transformed by the same gospel that has radically transformed them. That's always been our motivation. Well, this, there's never been anything else. This has never been an end of itself, this building. And it's great to get here every week and to meet with you, and it's a joy. It's an absolute joy. I'm not knocking that at all. I'm just saying this is not the, this is, this is just the beginning. This is just getting out of the starting blocks. There's a whole, there's a whole life to live, the whole adventure with Jesus, which includes all those other things. So if, if what I've said this morning is true, and I believe it is true, uh, because I wouldn't have preached if I don't believe it's true. But if it is true, what I said, then I want to say as a community of faith, we have much ergon, much work to do for the kingdom. And I want to encourage you as we run up to Christmas, that you reflect on your own life, as I'm reflecting on mine, that you reflect on the priorities of time, as I'm reflecting on my own time priorities, that you reflect on how you spend your money, as I'm reflecting on how I spend my money, and allow God to speak to you about what you feel God is saying you must give your hand to. And I believe as a church community, it's one of the things we have to find together. God, what are you calling us to put our hands to? What is, how are we going to do this? What does it look like? These are very practical things. And there are many opportunities. Already Marcel has initiated PEED, which is a program that the Vineyard is involved in which is trying to help supply physical needs of people that do not have food. There's a step program that we're involved in, getting into, into communities, this community of faith getting into the schools, and there are some like uh, Tamar and Rachel and Helen and others that are involved in that, Richard. There's 267, which is a, a, again a ministry for young people that we are cooperating with, partnering with. To try and get into the lives of young 20-somethings, teenagers, and preach the gospel. We took a trip to Slovenia recently, myself, Colin, and Callum. We've been there before. On the back there, you says, uh, there's a little thing that says, we're ready to raise 5,000 pounds to help them. I want to say to you, 5,000 pounds for our church is nothing. It really is nothing. I know my family has a lot of money. But I'll tell you, what 5,000 pounds would do for them is massive. What does 5,000 pounds mean? It means this, guys. It means that you and I can commit to not having pizza for a couple of months. That's really what it means. It's incredible. It's, I know our incomes are all limited. It's incredibly, it's just a matter of priority. That's all it is. Now, okay, I choose for this time, I'm not going to have pizza. Okay, and the bad money that I spend on pizza, I'm going to give. Whatever it is, I'm not going to put stuff on you. I'm just saying, this is how practical it is. Kyrgyzstan. Petra's been going there for years. They need a roof for the cattle shed. And go and speak to Petra about what they need. It's going to cost us, we could, we could help. It's going to cost us nothing for them to need everything. What about Alpha? What about reaching out to the lost and the poor and the broken? Uh, we did a little thing with the hungry leaders. We just had to look at saw what kind of gifts people had and needing life which was made as before five the primary gift of people was evangelism. They want to get out there and they want to share the good news and they want to so you don't have to be too bright to say, okay well let's do an alpha course. 
Let's do something. We've done it before. Let's do it again. I want to, I want to encourage you, challenge you. What about looking at Christmas differently this year? As a church community. What about us going with less so that we can do something for others that will involve others who have nothing and more? It's going to cost us. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost me. What about caring for people in this church that have very little? The early church was characterized by that. Amongst them, there was no one in need. So surely that's part of the equation as well. Back to a place where we are not just surviving ourselves, but we are sowing money out to other communities. I want to say to you, we, we, we used to be a church that sowed more than 10% of our income out every single month. Over the 10 years we've got this, we have sowed out literally tens of thousands of pounds into other ministries that are not going to do us any good. Just to sow and to say, God is part of, part of what you have for us. I want to encourage you. That's what we would like to get back to. Not just having enough for ourselves, but having more than enough so we can start our community, other churches, other churches. This is the gospel.